Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet emergency room doctor turned medical fiction writer, Kimry Martin, whose recent book is The Antidote for Everything. The New York Times says Martin leverages her own background as a doctor to great effect throughout. In this smart, timely novel, two doctors must choose between treating their patients and keeping their jobs when the hospital instructs doctors to stop treating transgender patients. We start the show with Kimry reading from the first chapter of the book, where the female protagonist has started her day by stabbing a man in the scrotum, But as the story opens, we learn that Dr. Georgia Brown has a medically defensible reason for doing so. Chapter 1. There's nothing wrong with manscaping. Most women did not begin their days by stabbing a man in the scrotum. But Georgia Brown was not most women. She'd risen as she always did at 5 o'clock, prepared her usual concoction of coffee and medium-chain triglyceride oil, and gone for a run. She loved the pre-dawn streets of Charleston. Absent the cacophony of tourists and the nuclear blanket of the sun, the air was usually quiet and cool, laced through with the tang of the sea. Afterward, a quick shower, a moment of meditation to try to tamp down the endorphins, a grooming blitz, hair in a twist, a smear of bright red lipstick, and she was ready to work. Stab was the wrong verb, of course, but you didn't become a female urologist without a strong sense of humor. In any case, there was little humor in the scenario currently confronting Georgia in the OR, but at least she felt good about her role in it. Well, she felt good about saving a guy's life, not the unfortunate surgical procedure she'd been drafted to perform. At first glance, the man splayed on the table in front of her appeared to be the kind of diabetic who, in another era, would have perished from a gruesome case of groin sepsis before reaching the age of 40. But now, thanks to the miracle of modern medicine, this man would live to fight another day. Granted, he might be fighting with only one ball, assuming at least one of his balls survived the infection currently encompassing his manhood, but surely losing a testicle or two was a small price to pay for regaining a life. Kimry Martin is a Charlotte novelist whose debut work of medical fiction, The Queen of Hearts, has been praised by multiple media outlets, including Southern Living, The Harvard Crimson, The Charlotte Observer, and The New York Times. 
A lifelong literary nerd, she promotes reading, interviews authors, and teaches writing seminars. She's a frequent speaker at libraries, book festivals, and bookstores around the United States. Prior to her writing career, Kimry practiced emergency medicine as a physician in multiple Charlotte area hospitals. She's also been an engaged volunteer for multiple organizations within the city, including a seven-year term on the board of directors at A Child's Place and a current term on the board of trustees of Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. She lives with her husband and their three children in Charlotte. Her recent novel, The Antidote for Everything, Penguin Random House, released today, February 18, 2020. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Camry, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm listening to this first read, and I'm kind of squeamish here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and you say here, losing a testicle or two? I mean, come on, or two? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) That that was a little bit more than was necessary. A small price to pay. I guess it's a small price to pay for gaining a life, sure. But what an opening opening line here. Most women do not begin their day by stabbing a man in the scrotum. That's true, right? That is true. I have a really vivid memory um, from my surgical internship of performing a similar case and telling my brother-in-law about it. And for years, he wouldn't even look at me. Did he, did he just, <laughs> when you were talking, did he just hold his hands in his lap? I mean, <laughs> he, he literally brought it up every time I saw him. Because <laughs> that, that's the reaction. I was about to ask you if that had happened before, but obviously you get inspiration from your work, right? Yeah. Oh, right. What you know. Uh-huh. Although I'm, I'm not a urologist myself, but I, I did some training in general surgery. Yeah. Well, let's talk about these characters for a minute in this, in this book, The Antidote for Everything. Um, you got two main characters, Jonah and Georgia. Georgia is the female urologist who we see in the opening scene of this. Uh, why a female urologist for your protagonist? Well, Georgia is a spinoff character from my first novel, and she was a minor character in that book, and there was this one sentence in the book that said she went on to become a urologist in Charleston, and I don't remember where that came from just or why one, I said just, that. <laughs> it just took one sentence, right? <laughs> but but having said that, I mean, urology is just an awesome field to write about. The jokes just kind of write themselves, and it's interesting. I, I crowdsourced yeah. a bunch of female urologists when I was writing it. So are there... So are there more female or male urologists? What's the deal here? It's actually... I believe it's the specialty with the least female practitioners, maybe outside of neurosurgery. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's less than a thousand in America of female urologists. So what is it about the psyche of a female doctor that wants to be a urologist? Yeah, I had to delve into that a little bit. I mean, it's a surgical field. It's very interesting. Um, There needs to be female representation in all areas of medicine because urologists don't just treat men. You know, they treat the genitourinary system of everybody, Mm -hmm. um, and it encompasses medicine and surgery. And so I think it's a great field for women. All right. And then she's got a – I use the word sidekick, but it's someone that 
is her best friend in this novel named Jonah. Uh, he's a gay doctor. Uh, why cast a gay doctor in your novel? And why him? And why him? Um, well, the book really revolves around the very close friendship between these two people, these two doctors. And, and just like all people, doctors come in many forms, you know, we're, we're all different, we're all interesting. Um, I think my novels are very character driven. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about the main characters before I write them and try to get a feel for what they're like and their personalities. And Jonah in real life reminds me of a close friend of mine. But but also the book's theme centers around discrimination in healthcare against a particular group of people. And I didn't feel like it would be right to have, um, you know, all straight characters <laughs> in this right, book. Right. Did you have some uh, consultants uh, in, in, in that world who could sort of clue you in as to what the feelings are of a gay person who's trying to deal with discrimination in the workplace, discrimination in medical care? Did, did, or did you kind of just do some research and come at it that way? Well, I, I think it's really important as an author not to try to tell the story of a marginalized group when you're not in that group. And so mm -hmm. this book really is from the point of view of an ally. And I think ally fiction sure. is valid. Straight but not narrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the, bumper that's the bumper sticker I had during Amendment 1. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I was an ally. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, allies are important, particularly when they are able to reach different audiences. But... Um, but having said that, I did use sensitivity readers. Um, even though Jonah's not a point of view character, he's a pivotal character. And so I had, I think, six people who read the book for me um, from the perspective of that community to try to make sure that I was being you know, authentic yeah. and accurate in their representations. You know, that was smart. And I mean, he, I have to say, you know, I like Georgia, but I kind of, Jonah really brought <clears throat> a little bit of verve to the to the book, you know, a little bit of something else. I mean, he's a big personality, <laughs> and he's funny, and he's fun, and yeah. yeah you and I know you shouldn't <laughs> ask, you know, who your favorite children are, but did, did you like Jonah or, or Georgia better? I'm gonna ask anyway. Yeah. I mean, I love Jonah. I yeah. loved him. Yeah. I, I loved him. I just wished uh -huh. he was real. Uh, what about the supporting characters? We got Mark, who Georgia meets on a plane in very unusual circumstances early in the book, right? Yeah, there's uh -huh. a definite meet cute going on uh -huh. with their romance, um, uh and I think my publisher really wanted a romance in the book, even though it's definitely a uh, subplot. Um, but yes, she's on an airplane and, and here's the dreaded call for a doctor <laughs> going out over the yeah. loudspeaker system and, and, um, and meets this man who's having a medical emergency. So I was going to ask you about setting, and that, that's a good segue to that point, because one of the settings is on a plane that's transatlantic. Uh, she's Georgia has just stabbed someone in the scrotum, and now she's off on, <laughs> on vacation, having done that, and she's headed overseas. Uh, and that call, as you said, comes over the intercom, and, you know, is there a doctor on the plane kind of thing? And it's, well, yeah, I'm, but I'm a urologist, right? And so that she meets this person who becomes her love interest by having a Actually, I'm trying to figure out how he's been poisoned to figure out how to save him, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of settings, and that's an interesting one to start the book, um, but you also set the book in two other places. One was Charleston. One was Amsterdam. First, why Charleston? Well, I was locked into Charleston from that sentence from the Queen of Hearts, but um, 
Charleston's just a fabulous city to set mm-hmm. a book in because then you can go research. <laughs> right. Um, everyone loves Charleston. You can Everyone's deduct your, your hotel expenses to go down there, right? Yeah. yeah this is an, <laughs> this is a happy accident I learned from my accountant yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a few years ago, exactly. and so now I'm doing a lot of travel for my next book, uh, the yeah. one I'm writing now. Um, but yeah, just, set this way overseas, right? Somewhere exotic. Yeah. 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 Well, I did think this book should be set in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I live in the South, and um, when we get a little bit more into some of the laws that prompted um, certain legal fictions in the book, um, a lot of those tend to be primarily in the South. Okay, but <clears throat> you're not just in Charleston because in the first half of the book where this sort of love interest takes place with Georgia, you're in Amsterdam, right? Yes. Have you been to Amsterdam? I have. Yeah? I have. It okay. was one of my favorite trips. And um, I, I think I... First of all, I have a big interest in travel. Um, I like learning, you know, global realities that are so different from where I live. And um, so I always want to incorporate a little travel into my novels. Um, But Amsterdam was fun and interesting, and it seemed like a good backdrop. And the scene with Georgia and Jonah on the loose in Amsterdam is my favorite one in the book. Um, We're going to read from that right now. But let's set up the scene just a little bit. First of all, with uh, the chapter heading, because... You do something in the book that I found fun. You, you use a little chapter heading and you pull a little phrase from each chapter as your chapter heading, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And the chapter heading for chapter nine from which you're going to read now, which is a scene in Amsterdam, is called The Munitions of the Gay Army. Uh, where does that come from? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That came from some strange <laughs> some, place in my brain. <laughs> some strange place in your game. Right? Whatever yeah. the munitions are. So. Jonah and uh, Georgia are kind of on the loose, exploring the town by themselves, and they go to a, uh, what kind of bar? The two characters, Georgia and Jonah, have been to a coffee bar where they partook of some marijuana, and then they got lost trying to find the restaurant where they had reservations. So they have um, now made it to the restaurant, had their dinner, met up with Mark, and they are leaving. They glided through the restaurant and into the cool night. The intermittent rain had eased, and in place of the low clouds hung a massive golden moon. Soft moonlight mingled with the glowing orbs of the cast-iron streetlights, flicking effervescent daubs of light onto the dark water of the canals and illuminating everyone's faces with an alien radiance. The ancient bridges, the cobblestone streets, the couples strolling arm-in-arm, All of it combined to produce an atmosphere of such romanticism that it felt almost contrived, like a scene in a Hollywood movie about Amsterdam. As they moved farther from the restaurant, the noise and light increased, little by little, until eventually they found themselves standing near a conglomeration of streets throbbing with a carnival atmosphere. The moon, chastened, retreated behind a wall of neon. Oh, she said. The red light district. Yep, said Mark. I guess you have to see it at least once, right? An alley reared up in front of them. This was where romance and ambiance came to die, apparently, replaced by some sordid, businesslike approximation of lust and at least 10,000 dopey, gawking tourists. Catching up to Georgia, Jonah picked up her hand and squeezed it as they passed the lighted showcases of the prostitutes. To their right, a young woman with coarse blonde hair and broad Slavic cheekbones appeared on the verge of dying of boredom, 
standing in her underwear in a glass-walled cubicle, aggressive hip bones jutting out all over the place, a cell phone to her ear. Jonah studied her. I'm not feeling it, he said. You're gay, Jonah. So, I appreciate beauty in all its forms, as does any man, but I also appreciate a little more, you know, joie de vivre. Or at least consciousness, Georgia agreed. The prostitute, expressionless, had closed her eyes. She appeared to have fallen asleep, still on the phone. So, did you have fun retracing your steps through the red light district? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to comment on my time in Amsterdam specifically. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I do want to apologize mm-hmm. to the city of Amsterdam because I think they're trying to cut down on dumb tourists like the ones in my book. Like, like, like Jonah and Georgia. But they, in their defense, they didn't intentionally go there. They just stumbled there after. They were wandering, yes. They were wandering. Okay. All right. So we've got uh, the main characters. We've got a supporting character in Mark. But we've got to have uh, some conflict in the novel, right? So we've got some evildoers. And you've kind of broken them into uh, several groups here. You start with hospital administration. Is this some leftover thing you've been dealing with, Kimry, since you were <laughs> an EI doctor? I'm sure that all the doctors talk about the administration, right? I actually, I felt a little bad making one of the um, the villains in the book be an HR person because yeah. I appreciate those people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there there is a conflict in the book between Georgia and Jonah and and their patients um, and the hospital administration's policies. And that's, you know, a nice conflict to have. It's a good external conflict. And you've also added the clinic's lawyer, right? So, he, Sorry. Sorry. I know. I know. <laughs> Look, I can, I can see it. I can see it. And Lawyer's got to be the bad guy. This is a medical book. Exactly. And the law itself is really kind of a bad guy in here, too, a little bit of an evildoer, which uh, kind of reads us, reads us, which kind of leads us uh, and reads us <laughs> into our next read here. So to set this up, um, let's talk just a second about sort of the underlying, because every book has a, um, it has a plot, it has sometimes a social issue you're going to address, it has an underlying theme that you're dealing with. One of the important topics you're dealing with in this book is the denial of medical care to a marginalized group, right? A segment of society, perhaps, that can't speak as strongly for itself, um, just because it doesn't have the kind of allies you mentioned, and you've chosen to focus on the denial of medical care, and you've added an interesting twist here, on religious freedom grounds. So how did this idea come to you to kind of explore this topic in your book? Well, it came gradually. Um, as I said, I usually start with the characters of a book and then and then figure out what the plot is, which is maybe not ideal. but um, Especially if you're into it about 150 pages. <laughs> yeah, yes, that is very true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, originally I had a different plot for this book, but then a couple of things happened. That refocused my attention in this direction. And, and at that point, I knew Jonah was gay. Um, and I started paying attention to some of the real-life things that were happening in my community and around the country. So in Charlotte, we had a, um, an attempt by the uh, city government to add um, ordinances that would protect people on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, that kind of thing. And those ordinances were overturned by the state in a um, now very famous piece of legislation called House Bill 2. Yeah, HB 2, right. So it gets really complicated. Um, And the same is true of medical care, actually. So it's supposed to be illegal to refuse medical care to somebody on the basis of their orientation or their identity. Um, There's actually a clause in the um, 
ACA, Obamacare. Um, I think it's 1557. Now, I got to put in a caveat sure, here. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> we're, we're not going to fact check that on you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my brain almost exploded trying to read all these court yeah. cases. You can but, always drop back and say it was <laughs> fiction, right? <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. I do have some creative license. Yeah. But in reality, it's supposed to be illegal for any healthcare provider to refuse care on that basis if they are accepting federal dollars. But in the last couple of years, the government has stopped enforcing those protections. There was a, a deliberate decision made by the Department of Health and Human Services to stop enforcing those protections so that even though you're not supposed to do it, you can do it, and HHS isn't going to protect those people. Now, th those cases are working their way through the courts right now. Um, so there may well be some resolution nationally to this at some point. And so what you've done is you've taken uh, this sort of loophole that exists out there, both in terms of medical care and in terms of discrimination, you've thrown them both at us in this novel, right? Yeah, they get because, a little conflated in the yeah, novel, that's because, true. Because Jonah's job is at risk. He can be fired. If he doesn't heed the hospital's narrative and goal of not treating these individuals. Yes, and that is the second thing that inspired me to write the novel was um, it's loosely based on a real-life circumstance of someone I know who was fired for precisely that reason. Um, they would not agree to stop treating transgender patients, and they were fired from their medical practice. And, you know, it's interesting that um, the grounds being asserted are religious freedom grounds. Uh, that is, we shouldn't as a hospital, because we're funded by a religious organization, for example, have to treat certain kinds of people if the Bible says it ain't so. And so what we've got here is chapter 11, a dangerous point of combustion. There's a meeting that's taking place where Georgia, who's attending with Jonah to have his back, so to speak, is going to hear from the administration about what they think about treating a certain group of people. This meeting serves as a follow-up to discuss clinic policies regarding our moral code of conduct, said Beesom. I'd like to say something, if I may, said Jonah. He leaned forward, shining with goodwill. I recognize we may have some basic disagreements when it comes to what constitutes a moral code of conduct, but all human beings deserve medical care. I respectfully request that those patients who have been instructed to leave our clinic be welcomed back. No, said Beeson. Jonah waited a beat, but apparently that was it. No? No, said Beeson again. Moving on. Wait, what is the rationale for dismissing these patients? Beeson issued the slow, tolerant sigh of a parent dealing with an irrational toddler. Dr. Sukata, we've been over this. Jonah blinked. His earnestness had begun to deflate a bit, but his voice was still calm. First, do no harm, right? It is harmful to our patients to refuse them care. They are perfectly free to seek care elsewhere. Furthermore, this decision is out of our hands. A self-satisfied nod. This is coming from the hospital, which does not condone certain therapies you've been providing. Going forward, we will no longer be able to accommodate transgender patients. We are not legally obligated to enable medical care contradicting our moral code, especially of patients attempting some kind of unnatural transformation. 
In unison, every eye in the room shifted to the direction of the red-bricked monolith across the pedway. Like the clinic, the hospital had been founded by the fundamentalist megachurch across town, to which many of its employees, including Beeson, belonged. An urge to respond rose up from George's gut, prompting her to clench her teeth. They can't always seek care elsewhere, said Jonah. Many of my trans patients have complex medical needs that few other doctors treat. Plus, this is the only hospital and the only clinic in this county. Some of these patients don't have the means to get all the way into Charleston, and there are often long waits to get into a medical practice as a new patient. Not to mention they'd likely be charged more or have to go out of network. So we're kind of in the middle of the novel now. The stage is set. Uh, Georgia's got this uh, sort of love interest, not so sure, Mark. I mean, she's she's kind of woman who really doesn't attach herself to men too much, but then this guy, Mark, comes along, gets on a plane, has a problem. She saves him. Usually it's the other way around, and he falls in love. Well, he did kind of fall in love with her a little bit, right? Yeah, uh, I think yeah. he fell harder than she did. <laughs> and so she's trying to navigate should she be, but she's still got her relationship with Joan, and she's surprised to find out that the hospital is doing you know, what it's doing in terms of treatment, and uh, she's going to be on the spot as well before we get too much further into the book. And it's sort of like these two characters are fighting the good fight for these others who can't fight for themselves. And Beeson, just to be clear, he's this hospital administrator, HR person that you've chosen to carry the weight of the the evildoer. Yeah, again, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. No, don't don't be sorry. You gotta have a good good external conflict. So what are some of the internal conflicts that are going on at this point of the book with uh with Jonah and with uh with Georgia? First of all, I I do think that transgender patients can fight for themselves. Um I did not portray any of I didn't really portray any transgender characters, particularly not from a point of view. Um perspective. Um, again, because that's not, that's not really my story to tell. But doctors have a unique um, position in society, particularly when it comes to uh, determination of rules regarding medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think Georgia and Jonah are uniquely qualified to weigh in on this and to, as you say, fight the good fight to try to protect the, the patients that need their help. Yeah, and just to be clear, uh, you're right. But a lot of times those that are affected or marginalized don't fit into the power structure enough to be able to affect the change. That's, kind of, that's kind of what I meant. No, no, so, absolutely. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're correct. I mean, the power structure here is, is very removed from, your, from the average patient's ability to impact, let alone a patient that's marginalized for some reason by society. So what, one of the uh, – I'm, I'm kind of leaning toward the internal conflict. Both Jonah and Georgia are wrestling – with these issues about what's going to happen, the choices they have to make, um, do they stay and continue the profession they love, or do they fight and risk being terminated? And when one gets the axe and the other doesn't, then you get so. And then Georgia, she's got some other baggage she's carrying around, right? Yeah, yeah. So we we get into some other stuff regarding her background. Um, And I won't go into that because it's a kind of a pivotal point in the book that um, that impacts her decisions. Leave the readers hanging a little bit here, yeah. Yeah, so she she has something in her background that's going to directly affect her ability to engage in all this. Um, 
But yeah, for Jonah, um, giving up a medical practice is an enormous deal. Um, losing your job as a physician is really hard. And you can't even just start up another practice because a lot of times you're you're restricted by a, you know, a covenant that you signed when you took the job that says if for whatever reason you leave, you can't practice within 200 miles or whatever for, right. for a period and of a years. Covenant not to compete, yeah. So he's hosed. <laughs> right. um, he gets fired and, and he has no other option for employment unless he moves away from his home. But he doesn't hesitate. He goes for, you know, he, he immediately gets the ax and accepts that. Mm. Um, so there's a little suspense here. There's a little mystery here. Things are unraveling as they go. You're trying to resolve things. So, all right, listeners, uh, stay with us, please. When we come back from our break, uh, we're going to get uh, got another reading here. And we're also going to do the writing life segment. And then we've got uh, a couple of reads to close. So uh, please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the episode with Kimry Martin. I wanted to update you on what's going on with our Patreon page this month. This is the page where you can get access to member-only content if you support the show and help me help authors give voice to the written words. And we've got two new author editions this month for our engaged reader or writer level. You'll hear from Kathy Pickens, a renowned mystery writer and true crime writer who's talking about writing true crime. And you'll hear from Judy Goldman, who's well-known as a memoirist uh, and an instructor in that genre, on writing memoir. At the voracious reader or writer level, you'll get access to those two episodes, plus two more. The two additional ones are our rejection episode. I recorded this with Alexis Carrero. She's the podcast host of Fun With Failure. And we talk about rejection stories shared with us by authors who've been on the show and also the Gone Dogs episode where you hear authors read stories from the book Gone Dogs about the animals they loved. In addition to this content, uh, our members also have access to the back content. And we had eight episodes on a variety of topics uh, that, that were up and available as of the end of January. So please take a look at the, these options. Uh, you can go to find these episodes at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash charlotte readers podcast or through our exclusive content page on the website patreon is simply a way for others to join our team and help me help authors give voice to the written words in other words keep uh, these two shows i'm putting out a week free uh, and let us uh, cover some expenses and uh, expand and promote the authors and promote uh, what happens here on the, on the podcast so we really appreciate those of you who uh, consider this those of you who join and uh even if you don't join, we want to thank you for listening to the podcast. We, we appreciate you being here. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. Hey, listeners, we're back with uh, Kimry Martin, author of The Antidote for Everything and also The Queen of Hearts. And Kimry, um, you have written uh, these two novels, uh, both what we call medical fiction with strong female heroines. Did you fall into that because it's uh, sort of you just had all these stories from <laughs> your ER days or your doctor days? Uh, was it natural to you to write uh, medical fiction? That is definitely the, the piece of advice that novice writers receive the most, right? Yeah. Write what you know. Um, so my first novel I wrote with really no background in writing at all. I'm a, 
obsessive reader. And, and from that, I kind of wanted to try writing a book, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have any practice at it. Um, but I sat down and I started, which is, again, not perhaps the ideal way to go about writing a book. Um, but naturally, I knew I was going to write something medical because that's what I'd done my whole life, um, my whole adult life. And then the second book, I have a contract with Penguin Random House that actually specifies that my protagonist has to be a female doctor. Hmm. That, so that led to the antidote for everything. Yes. So yeah. it, it got very niche. <laughs> yeah. okay. right. Well, you know, write what you know is good advice, except when uh, you need to go somewhere you've never been, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you got to do a little research and, and that kind of thing. But it does bring some color to the, to the page when you feel that the person who's writing writing this fiction is speaking truth, right? Yeah, I love that fly-on-the-wall glimpse of some industry or setting when it's written by somebody who really knows it. I I love reading books like that myself. So we've got this little short scene that's got, uh, it's sort of the day in the life of of a female urologist, uh, which is going to be sort of the first paragraph you read, but then the second paragraph of this read sort of gives us a glimpse, I think, into George's uh, view on being single, perhaps? Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, so this is very early in the book before she meets Mark. Okay. The remainder of the day passed in the slightly surreal haze accompanying an epiphany. She did all the usual things. She performed a vasectomy on a grimacing man. She employed a green light laser to photovaporize the prostate of a hedge fund manager with trouble urinating. She spoke with a college soccer player and his weeping father about surgery to remove his cancer-ravaged testicle. She gave each of them her full attention, focusing not only on the questions they asked, but also on the ones they failed to ask, taking care to give the floppy-haired soccer player her special patient email address so he could, at his leisure, write the questions he could not bring himself to consider now. She placed a nerve-stimulating device in a painfully shy elderly lady, contemplating the yawning gap between social ease and the dysfunctional hell of not being able to control your bladder. Sure, people lauded their adorable pediatricians and their life-saving cardiologists and the heroic last-ditch efforts of their oncologists, but you'd never experienced gratitude until you'd given someone the gift of continence not to mention the profound indebtedness of a man who could have sex again. But throughout all of this, she kept reverting to an image of her patients, entwined in one another's arms, pressed by the narrow confines of the hospital bed against the metal safety bars. Here, death, the ancient, great, primordial fear, had been eclipsed by love. Her patient feared not dying, not pain, not a cessation of form and life and thought, but separation from the human being he loved above all others. What would that be like, she wondered, for another person to love you that much? And Mrs. Fogelman, Georgia imagined her face as she watched the sentience leave her husband's eyes, as his vital mind, so full of verve and dazzle, switched itself finally and irrevocably off. How did you withstand such a loss? How did you find that kind of love in the first place? So, Kimmy, this gives a little insight into the mind of Georgia, right? Right. Which, uh, 
And I noticed here that, uh, you know, in this book you're writing in third person, right? But you wrote first person in The Queen of Hearts? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, and so, but you're still able with third person close to kind of get into the to the head of the different characters in different places, which you do. Could you switch point of views at times through the book? And at some point, we get in Mark's head at some point, right? Mm-hmm. We even get into the head of an evildoer at some point, don't we? At some point in the book. Yes, yeah. at the at the end, you, <laughs> you you get into the mind of one of the villains. Yeah, yeah. So um, when you're writing characters, um, I had someone on the podcast once. Uh, who said that uh, when she sits down at her computer, the characters are kind of lined up in the lobby there waiting to get into the room <laughs> to be interviewed, to be on the, in, in her book. Um, how do you develop your characters? Honestly, I think so much of the process of writing is subconscious. And, and writers tend to divide themselves into two big groups. You know, there's the plotters, the people that outline. They know what's coming all the time. They flesh out their characters really fully. Um, and then there's the other group, of which I am a member, um, and they, they call themselves the pantsers, you right, know, seat yeah. of your pants people. Exactly. Um, and the seat of the pants people often have no clue what's coming next. Um, so for... For characters, for me, I usually start with a little bit of dialogue and kind of get a feel for their voice, how they sound. Um, I try to picture them. Um, but a lot of it is just f- free flow writing that, you know, I wind up editing heavily later, but I kind of just throw stuff at the wall and see what works. Yeah, so you said you're character driven first. You, you think about plot later, but this scene you just read is indicative of, of having an insight into, into George's mind and the kind of person she is, a very strong doctor, very skilled, and yet struggling with this sort of concept of, you know, being alone in the world and then having a hard time, you know, with attachment uh, because of fear that maybe it's not going to work out the way it should. So do you draw on uh, – I'm not asking about your personal <laughs> life. You're happily married. you got a couple of kids. You know? so that's not exactly where I'm going here. But do, do you draw on experiences that you've had to kind of – and do you piece people together you've met over the years to kind of come up with these characters and these struggles they're having? Yeah, certainly. I think many characters are an amalgam of various people that the writer has known plus a bunch of just sheer fiction thrown in. Right. Uh, Georgia falls into that category. She's she's sort of loosely based on a couple of friends of mine with a, a whole bunch of made-up traits as well. And as I started writing her, um, yeah, again, I would just sort of see wh- how she felt mm-hmm. as she was speaking. Mm-hmm. And then gradually I made more conscious decisions. Okay, she's single. Okay, she grew up here. She These are the things she reads. These are the things she likes. And those informed her personality as as the novel evolved. So this is a good, uh, good transition to the writing life segment on the show here. So let's talk writing for a second. Did you grow up around books? Did you have books in your house? Oh, up? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were the bookiest house ever. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. My mom actually uh, got a degree in children's literature um, when I was really young. And so I went to the library every day with her um, at the University of Kentucky. And then um, when she went back to work... I went to the library in my town after school every day. So I literally was raised in a library. I yeah. read 
every book they had. And you're still attaching yourself to the library being on the board. I right? love libraries. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I attribute like any success I've ever had to a library, yeah. and I um, will graciously withhold my failures. From yeah, the we library. love the library too. Charlotte <laughs> Library is one of our sponsors, so you know everybody's got to go to the library. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, what did this path look like from emergency room doctor to medical fiction writer? Was it an abrupt? I'm, I'm, I'm walking out the door and I'm going to be a writer, or did it kind of gel over time? And how, how did that come about? It was very incremental. Um, I don't, you'd have to, well, since we're talking urology here, you'd have to have some big balls to just quit your job <laughs> and be a writer <laughs> because That's true. it is not a well paid yeah. field for most of us. Yeah, and um, yeah. so, yeah, I, and also I didn't know if I could write. Remember, I have no background yeah, in this, I, yeah. I just like to read. Yeah. Um, so I started writing and I got hooked completely early on, I realized I loved the process and I wanted to do it. And I started carving out time, which in reality meant giving up a whole bunch of stuff to be able mm. to do it. Yeah. And that people, you know, wonder, well, how did you have time to write that book, Landis, while you're practicing law? Or, you know, Kimmy, how did you have time to do that while you were raising your family and working mm-hmm. this and doing this job and all this kind of stuff. And really it's a matter of, I think, uh, giving up one thing to do another thing, right? Yeah. I always yeah. say I gave up television and hygiene. <laughs> also cooking. <laughs> well, that's a good way to have people not interrupt you while you're writing, right? Give up hygiene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I didn't even consider that. I didn't consider that. So, so what? Here, here's another question about this. So, I had to teach myself not to write like a lawyer. What did you have to teach yourself? What do you have to unlearn as a doctor to write fiction? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well. Because doc- you can't ever read what doctors write anyway. This, yeah. This group, you know. And my, yeah. my um, I would say that my tendency as a doctor is ex- to not explain things well is exacerbated by um, the fact that I'm such a vocabulary nerd. Like, I truly think in terms of the billions of words that I know and love. And so, so if we th- look in your charts, we're going to find some <laughs> words with lots of syllables. So there's a lot of medical <laughs> words that really need explanation. And so, of yeah. course, my first instinct is yeah. to just you know, jot that down without considering what that looks like to a layperson. But also, of course, you have to consider those things as a writer. You can't assume that um, your reader knows what you know. I do that when I'm driving, too. If I'm in the passenger seat or if I'm in the driver's seat, I just assume that the other person knows where we are if I know. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to be conscious of that kind of thing. Yeah, so you said it kind of gelled over time. You were thinking about this uh, as you're practicing medicine and then you just kind of started writing while you're still a doctor I assume right you didn't just quit and no no yeah I'm going out there with with this book um why do you think readers are drawn to medical dramas in books and in tv oh I think because first of all everybody has some familiarity with that you know if you're a um a private equity person, not everybody knows what that is, but we all know what an ER doctor is. Yeah, that'd be is. a pretty boring series, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there's, but there's inherent... The private equity. Yeah, guy, there's yeah. inherent drama in medicine, too. You know, Unless it was Wall Street with Michael Douglas, Greed, uh, greed is Good. You yeah, know? No, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Actually, I kind of want to write a book that has a lot of yeah. financial characters in it, but okay. my publisher wouldn't let me. Okay, well, um, you can sneak that with a supporting character. Maybe the next love interest is going to be somebody who works on Wall Street or something. Actually, yeah. yes. My third, yeah. my third book is going to be incorporate that Um, or actually I think it'll be my fourth book um, because I've already started the third but um, yeah medicine is inherently dramatic right you're talking Mm -hmm. about the beginning of life and the end of life and everything Mm -hmm. that happens in between and that's compelling to all of us Mm -hmm. 
And so seeing it from the perspective of the people on the inside, I think it's kind of interesting to everyone. So you've already sort of hinted at uh, how you go about your writing process, very organized, fully outlined. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, not, not at all. But what, what do you enjoy most about the writing process, Kimberly? I really, it, I really like writing dialogue. Um, that's probably my favorite thing to write. Um, but I just enjoy the actual sitting down and coming up with sentences. I'm much better on a micro level than I am on a macro level. Again, um, plotting is not my strong point ahead of time. But mm. I really like just coming up with a sentence that sounds interesting. What do you find hardest or most frustrating about uh, the writing process? Well, it is more time-consuming as a profession than medicine was even. Um, there's so much outside the scenes of what makes a novel. You know, you not only have to write it and edit it and get it read by people and, and revise and revise and revise, but you have to promote it. And there's a lot of social media stuff and there's a lot of travel and there's a lot of, um, you know, engaging with readers and on and on and on, writing other stuff to support your, you know, to, to boost your visibility and um, I get overwhelmed by all the stuff I'm supposed to be doing. But you've got, and we're, you know, I noticed in the uh, advanced reader copy you provided to me to prepare for this podcast, you've got a marketing campaign in the front of this book. You launched the event in Charlotte at Park Road Books, right? And one of our sponsors for the show. You yes, go, tonight, go, 7 p.m. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Regional author tour, national broadcast publicity, national radio publicity. Uh, you've got trade advertising, online advertising, giveaways. Uh, now, how much of this is your publisher and how much of this is Kimry using her thumbs on Instagram to get the word out? Well, that list you just read is 100% the publisher. Mm. Um, but I have a mighty stack of stuff I'm expected to do mm. and, and that I want to do. I actually really like social media, um, which is strange to admit because you're really yeah. not supposed to, yeah. but I do yeah. like it. I like, in, I like engaging with people. Well, you got a pretty Instagram page. How'd you make that happen? Did you you have a young child that teaches you how to do that, or did you just grab it? No, to I totally need. I need a teenage <laughs> consultant for all that stuff. <laughs> Teenagers can make a lot of money actually consulting on social media. I think. Yeah. yeah. So, do you laugh at what your characters say? I mean, do you find yourself when you're writing laughing? I know. It's embarrassing if you saw me in my writing mode. I do cackle at myself sometimes. And it's sad because then, you know, <laughs> not everybody thinks that it's funny, but sometimes yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah. And, and do, you, do you ever, after you've written something, just want to share it right then to get your husband's take on it, for example? Or do you hold everything? until you're finished. How does that work, Kimberly? Um, I, I send stuff to my sister and my best friend all mm -hmm. throughout the process just because they're the only people that would tolerate me. And mm -hmm. then um, later on... Your husband's not going to tolerate Oh, <laughs> hell no. He is not going to... He hasn't read this book yet. He will yeah. read it. Um, He'll read it. But, By gosh, he will read this book, right? <laughs> he, he is extremely supportive, but he doesn't, yeah. yeah. doesn't want to read like every yeah. one of the thousand drafts. Okay. All right, before we go to the last couple of reads here, what's, uh, you know, we're going to talk about The Queen of Hearts, your first book before we finish today, but you said you're actually working on a th you know, your third book right now, so can mm -hmm. you give us any ideas as to what that next book is going to be about? I'm guessing it's going to be medical fiction, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's going to have a female mm -hmm. lead character, right? That is not a guess because I told you. <laughs> that is in my contract. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, so I'm, I'm not very far into this book, but I'm excited about it. Um, okay. One of the publicists um, at my publisher came up with um, kind of a log line for it that I think is really good. It's going to be the hot zone, 
meets Sophie's Choice. So it's about an infectious disease doctor who's traveling in Europe, southern, southern Europe, northern Africa, um, during, during the outbreak of a really severe viral pandemic. Mm. And um, she's got her children with her. And um, actually, I probably shouldn't you give. Probably shouldn't give <laughs> I probably shouldn't give too much away there. <laughs> yeah, because you haven't. You're, 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 you know, I think you know where I'm going with this. Though. Yeah, you write by the pants and you might decide to change it or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah you know? Actually, that's a lot more plotting than I normally do. <laughs> that is that is plotting. Okay. Well, look, um, let's uh, let's talk about our next read here. We've got. Uh, we're not going to give away anything in the book because, you know, you can breeze through this. It's good. It's a page turner. You got uh, lots of character. You got lots of action. You got lots of conflict, uh, internal and external. But uh, we get to a point in the book um, where Jonah um, is in serious trouble and Georgia is trying to fix it or has tried to fix it, but she's done something. We're not going to disclose what, but it probably hasn't gone the way it should, and she's having a conversation about that with Mark. Anything else you want to say about that scene? I think it's reflective of George's personality. She's kind of a um, a bossy, take charge, fix it kind of gal, and she wants very much to impact things positively for her friend, but she really messes this up. Yeah, and we're not going to tell you what she did or what she didn't do because you're at the point in this book and you're going to see this scene and you're going to wonder – what did she do? And then when you find out what she did, you're going to fi- be wondering, well, how in the hell are you going to fix, you know, what happened before the end of the book? So let's pick it up. This, she said, waving her hand to represent the situation, is inherently wrong, inherently evil to refuse to provide medical care to a group of people because of their sexual orientation. It is inherently wrong to fire someone from a job because they refuse to discriminate against their patients. It's cruel and harmful and indefensible to place someone else in a true existential crisis where they cannot have a means of supporting themselves or maintaining their health in order to stay alive. Yes, okay, said Mark. I'm with you so far. So, she said, what we did was manipulative, but it... She thought for a moment, choosing her words carefully. It wouldn't have been our first choice or second choice or even third choice of how to handle the clinic's actions. This fell more into the court of last resort, if we'd been able to think of any other way. He waited her out. But we couldn't. And eventually we came to realize that none of it was going to work. The president and the judges and the courts in this country are on the hospital administration's side. But you didn't need to publicize anything beyond what actually happened. The truth is enough to persuade people that Jonah shouldn't have been. She was already shaking her head. No, I wish it were enough, but it isn't. Someone got fired because they treat transgender people. To most people, that isn't particularly noteworthy. It isn't memorable. It isn't even illegal. She sat back, out of breath. Mark was still regarding her closely, his attention focused on her face. As unnerving as this was, it gave her pause to think. Prior to Jonah being fired, if you had asked her to identify the most useless personal characteristic, she'd have said, introspection. 
She'd never been one to turn her mind inward, and consequently, she might be unfamiliar with how other people viewed her as well. She didn't really care how other people viewed her, in fact. She was what she was, and other people were what they were, and the whole idea there was something to be gained by a preening, self-absorbed, exhaustive study of inner motivations, or whatever, struck her as a waste of time. Few people were that important. But she did know this about herself. She was honest. Or, and this was the key, she used to be honest. In the past, it would have never occurred to her to mislead someone else. And if she had misled someone, she'd have been ashamed to lie about it further. Not anymore. Now she saw she was not only living in a house of cards, and that you'd have to have a hardcore commitment to the philosophy of the ends justify the means in order to absolve her. But it was now her most intense hope that Mark would do exactly that absolve her for the choices she'd made. Okay, Cameron, you've got us on the edge of our seat here. Yeah. And uh, you've got a title here that goes with this, False in One Thing, False in Everything. We're going to find those words in this chapter, right? That's correct. Yeah. And then uh, use some Latin in here, mala in se, yeah. Inherently wrong, universally wrong. Inherently yeah. universally wrong, yes. Yeah. So, you know, there is... Uh, now, now George is struggling with what she's done. We don't know what she's done. We'll find out what she's done when we read the book. Uh, but it's not the only book you've written. You've written uh, book number one, too, yeah, Queen of Hearts. And in that book, uh, you've got more female heroines, right? Tell us, right. tell us about that book, because we're going to finish up with a short read from Queen of Hearts, because uh, it's... Uh, it's what launched this uh, new career you've got as a, as a novelist. So tell us about Queen of Hearts. So it is um, about a cardiologist, hence the title, um, and her closest friend, a trauma surgeon. And one of them is hiding this very significant secret from the other one. And originally my idea was to write um, a book about a group of friends in medical school because um, that was a really formative period in my own life. Um, and it gradually evolved into the relationship between these two women and, and this, this looming um, secret that is between them. Hmm. So... We've got uh, a heart doctor, we've got a urologist, and we're going to have an infectious disease control. You're just going to go through all the different specialties, and there are plenty of specialties, right? You can write, oh, yeah. how many books? You, 30, 40 books, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cover, I'd have to live a long time. <laughs> co cover, all, cover all the specialties. Um, so this book, Queen of Hearts, is set in? Charlotte. Charlotte, right, yeah. So you went from Charlotte to Charleston and the others. Um, was it fun putting it in Charlotte? And tell us some of the places you went in this book. Oh, it was fun. Um, Charlotte is a really fabulous city. Um, so we went to, uh, there's a scene in Myers Park, there's a scene in the epicenter, um, there's a scene outside a school, um, there's a scene at a pool. Um, and of course, there are lots of scenes in the hospital, right? And then the hospital is fictional. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to get you don't get in trouble, right? Your your lawyer probably said, "Don't call this Presbyterian or Atrium or whatever, whatever." Right? You know, this yeah, is just yeah, some yeah. just some fictional hospital that happens to be located in Charlotte, right? Yeah, I actually have a little something in the back of the book I wrote in the acknowledgments, um, or maybe it was the author's note. I get a lot of questions about 
whether I'm in this book. And um, I say if you uh, are one of those people that insists on thinking all novels are autobiographical, please skip chapters 9, 14, and 18. <laughs> also skip these chapters if you are my mother. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. but it is not autobiographical. Okay. Okay, Kimberly, we've got a little read here from Queen of Hearts, and uh, this is chapter one, Zadie, present day, Charlotte, North Carolina. Who's Zadie? Zadie is the main character. She's the cardiologist. She's a um, woman in her 30s with four children. All right, take it away. Chapter one, meetings are the enemy of progress. Almost 100 years before I was born, a man named Samuel Langhorn Clemens, better known to most of us as Mark Twain, said this about the human heart. You can't reason with your heart. It has its own laws and thumps about things which the intellect scorns. This is entirely true as far as I'm concerned, and I should know. I've devoted my professional life to the study of hearts, to their intricate, indefatigable machinery, and to their endless propensity to go awry. We thump for all sorts of reasons. Some are beautiful and life-affirming. Some are misguided, recognizable to everyone but you as catastrophically stupid. We thump for the unsuitable stoner in our college biochem class with his easy, wicked grin. We thump when somebody we don't like gets their comeuppance. We thump at cruelty and danger. I've never spent much time revisiting the past, having thought I've reached a settled spot in life where most of my wildly inappropriate thumping was behind me. Even if I wanted to look backward, I'd slogged through the last two decades unglued by sleep deprivation, first by my medical training, and then by an onslaught of babies, so my recall of some of those years has been washed as smooth as sand. But there are some things I don't want to remember. Emma and I have an unspoken agreement regarding our third year of medical school. We don't bring it up. Maybe even more than me, Emma has good reason to avoid those topics. And if there's one characteristic you'd assign to my closest friend within a nanosecond of meeting her... It's self-discipline. So, I was completely dismantled when Emma texted me. She wanted to talk about it. Okay, Kimmy, you got a good hook, right? You got you pull us in right away. There's a deep, dark secret, and uh, the secret's going to drive this uh, the, drive this story, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of secrets is not so much as what they are, but why they are. Mm. You know, why did this thing happen between them? And I, I don't think I asked you this in the writing life, but. Uh, Going from book one to book two, were there a few things you learned um, in writing book two that uh, had you known them in writing book one, it might have been a smoother process? Honestly, I feel like it was the other way around. Is that it right? was so much easier to write book one because nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have a contract, you didn't have a deadline. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was just sheer pleasure. I did it because I, it was fun. And I, you know, like I said, I would just sit there and laugh to myself as I wrote. Now it's much more difficult because I'm a little more aware of what constitutes a good book and, and I'm much more aware of my own failings. Mm -hmm. did, did any of your practices change in terms of how you approached it? Well, I did get smarter about um, plotting and, and understanding the elements of good fiction and, and that stuff. I don't 
know that I necessarily applied it very well. Maybe the third book. <laughs> well, they say you know it is true that uh, you know that you talk about pressure of getting that first book finished and getting it out, but then they say, but just think about the real pressure when you get a contract to do it in eight months the second time around after you spent two, three years on the first one, right? Yeah. So you'd have to change your practice a little bit. Well, Camry, this is great. I need to let you go because you're going to be, uh, you know, Parker book tonight. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to do? You're going to read and talk about the book? Uh, I'm going to um, leave that to be a big surprise. A big surprise. Okay. <laughs> right, good. We'll leave that to be a big surprise. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show to talk about uh, the antidote for everything, your recent book, as well as the Queen of Hearts. And uh, we'll be looking forward to the next book and then the next book and the next book. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>